I should like to say again what a joy it is to be with you in St. Andrews. I spent the uh, last 25 years of my ministry in a church called St. Andrews in the suburb of Dublin, and I also had a church in County Wicklow called St. Andrews in the town of Bray. Uh, that Scottish saint gets around. Someone said that the Scots couldn't put up with an ordinary saint. They had to have one of the apostles. Let us pray. In this hour, in this place, O God, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> we are Christians, therefore we pray. We read Paul's instruction, pray without ceasing, and we take it seriously. We set aside a time for prayer, and that time in the day is special and we protect it from the invasion of other tasks and other duties. If possible, we set aside a place for regular prayer. In Evelyn Waugh's novel, Bride's Head Revisited, the aristocratic family live in a spectacular stately home. They have had a special chapel built for their personal spiritual needs. It is most ornate. No expense has been spared on its decor and furnishings. All of us who make the effort to pray daily envy the Brideshead family. However, since you and I do not have a lavishly appointed private chapel, we must make do with a favorite chair, perhaps with a little table next to it for our Bible and our prayer book. And if that is not possible and our knees will permit, we ha could have a prayer cushion. It's wonderful how kneeling creates a humble desire within us to call upon God. We are Christians, therefore we pray. But individual prayer is solitary and therefore difficult. Self-discipline is tough. We get down on our knees and think of it as an inconvenience. As a Christian, I have a duty to pray, but this duty is often irksome. Why spend the next 10 or 15 minutes in this activity, we say, or rather this inactivity? Some would call it a waste of time. We have so much to do, and the time we have for ourselves alone is limited. Moreover, to add to our difficulties with prayer, there's the atmosphere in our secular world. Prayer has been banished to the margins of life. The daily newspaper contains few calls to prayer, if any. The fiction we consume in novels and television dramas and in movies depicts people who never resort to prayer, even in times of great difficulty. 
Moreover, in a society where the church is in decline, we probably have good friends who have abandoned prayer and all vestiges of religion. And some of them are doing quite well without it. The question nags at us as our creaking knees sink one more time into the prayer cushion. What am I doing here? We ask ourselves, surely there are better things that could occupy my time. And then there's the problem of wandering thoughts and distractions. When I kneel for prayer, God is never absent, but I frequently am. Individual prayer is solitary and therefore difficult. And so we need communal prayer. We need to gather with fellow believers to mingle our thanksgivings, our confessions of sin, and our devotion with theirs. Our individual prayers for others are now united with the general intercessions of the church in the days following Sunday worship, when next we kneel alone as individuals, when we next hear Jesus bidding us to shine, you in your small corner and I in mine, then we recall the greater prayers of the church, of which our own small prayers are just a part. And this is an encouragement and an inspiration. The whole church prays, and my prayers are but part of it. That's a most comforting thought. The Victorian hymn writer John Ellerton expressed it in simple but very effective poetry. The sun that bids us rest is waking our brethren neath the western sky, and hour by hour fresh lips are making thy wondrous doings heard on high. When you kneel alone on your prayer cushion, you are not really alone because communal worship assures you that you have the whole worldwide church alongside you. Now, the supreme act of communal worship in the church is the Lord's Supper. At the table of our Lord is the fullest expression of what the church is. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said that the church is never more fully the church than when she's met around the communion table. John Calvin, founder of what became Presbyterianism, said, the Lord's Supper is too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. I rather experience it than understand it. And the great mystery of Holy Communion is well expressed by St. Paul when he writes, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We might liken the Lord's Supper to an army on parade. Going on parade is vital for individual soldiers. They discover that they are part of a huge organization with great dignity and great esprit de corps and with a single great purpose the defense of the realm. 
After having been on parade, the individual soldier has a greater pride than ever before in what he's doing and how he's conducting himself, even when he has to go back to the boring task of peeling potatoes. A less grandiose analogy is that of family mealtimes. Dr. Theodore Dalrymple treats inner-city patients in Britain. He notices a pattern in many inner-city British homes. The parent, usually a single mother, is on benefits. She does not cook, but there's always a well-stocked fridge. The children grab food when they want it. There's never a family meal around a table where the identity of the family is celebrated and the family stories are told and retold. This is a contrast with the migrant families living in the same locality who have a very different pattern of living. Dr. Dalrymple notes that Asian families, whether Sikh or Hindu or Muslim, make sure that all are gathered around the table for the, male me the main meal of the day. The sharing of stories and adventures and disappointments with the wider family helps the children to realize they're part of something important. These religious Asians have a far healthier family life than the secularized and aimless post-Christian British. It's often claimed that the family that prays together stays together. That is true. But even more true is this saying, the family that eats together stays together. Holy Communion enables us to eat together with the family of God to which we belong. Our individual prayers and actions are given greater significance when we see, see them as part of this greater family. Therefore, God uses the Lord's Supper as a means of equipping his servants. The breaking of bread, the sharing of wine, is what makes us truly the church, an effective witness to the world and a powerful instrument of Christian service. John Calvin suggests that the Lord's Supper can be seen as a ladder by which we climb up to heaven. Because we are unable to fly high enough to draw near to God, he has ordained sacraments for us like ladders, says Calvin. If a man wishes to leap on high, he will break his neck in the attempt. But if he has steps, he will be able to proceed with confidence. And then Calvin concludes his argument, so also, if we are to reach our God, we must use the means which he has instituted since he knows what is suitable for us. God has given us this wonderful support and encouragement and strength in our weakness, the Lord's Supper. This idea of Calvin written down in the 16th century finds support in the 21st century from Pope Francis. Holy Communion is not a prize for the perfect, wrote the Pope recently. Holy Communion is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. God uses the Lord's Supper as a means of equipping his servants. The strong are more focused, 
The weak receive a strength which they never knew they had. We rise from the table renewed and refreshed, renewed and refreshed for the work of the kingdom. So after receiving nourishment, which the Lord's Supper provides, we are enabled to reach out to a needy world. After the deep prayer, which is the sacrament, we are refreshed for the work of mission. Having received the bread of life, we're stimulated to pray for the world all the more eagerly. And again, John Calvin can help us. He said, we don't get a better Christ in the sacraments, but sometimes we get Christ better. And if we get Christ better, we can surely better present Christ to others. Professor Tom Long recalls his upbringing in a small church in a small town in Georgia, USA. One Sunday, they had a visiting minister to celebrate communion. It was summer, and in that church without air conditioning, all the windows were wide open to catch the occasional breeze. After all had received bread and wine and the elders had returned the trays to the table, the minister asked a question which was not usual in that church. Is everybody fed? He asked. The congregation was confused. They'd never heard such a question at communion before. There was a silence. And then the minister asked the question again. Is everybody fed? There was a further silence in which the congregation could hear through the open windows sounds in the street outside, a car engine starting up, children playing, neighbors greeting each other, someone's radio playing country and western music, and then they grasped the meaning of the question. The Lord's Supper was awakening in them a desire to serve a world of many hungers, many needs, many yearnings. You and I leave the Lord's Supper and go out into the world with the taste of Christ on our lips, ready to give people a taste of Christ in their lives. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wondrous in our eyes. Amen.